Hi, this is JR from Design Museum Everywhere. I'm the exhibitions manager and editor for our We Design book that is dropping this year. We Design has taken on several different forms. You may have seen the in-person free exhibitions in schools and public buildings or our online virtual exhibition. Now, with your support, we're producing a book. It will feature 41 design stories of designers who refuse the confines of white supremacy and are creating innovative spaces, products, systems, and strategies at the forefront of contemporary design. We believe design can change the world. If you believe in the transformative power of design, we ask you to join us in lifting up the powerful and innovative voices of BIPOC, female, and gender expansive designers and back this project to bring this new book to life. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for more details and keep an eye out for the We Design book coming soon. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview another guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're learning about how cities are designed. We'll be joined by Joe Minicozzi, principal at Urban3, where he and his team make a quantifiable case for better city planning, urban design, and great, smarter growth. Later on, we'll chat with Sam Seidel, host of Unplanned, a video podcast about cities and how they work. Together, we'll all talk about how cities have changed since COVID and how we can better understand cities through the lens of a city planner. But first, I want to give a shout out and highly recommend Design Museum Magazine. If you like this podcast, I know you're going to love this quarterly publication. The most recent issue is all about the business of design. So there's articles about getting a job in design and how to represent yourself to recruiters and to companies who are hiring. There's stuff about learning about business as a designer, different business models for design firms. It's great. And we have issues coming up around footwear design, design in government, and more. Subscribing is only $3 a month and you get the world of design delivered right to your doorstep. Each one of these issues is like a book in itself. It's like getting a design book every three months. It's amazing. So check out Design Museum Magazine. You can visit us on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and then click on magazine in the menu on the right. You'll see some recent articles that you can preview and there's a link to subscribe. And with that, onto this week's topic. Over the course of history, cities have transformed and grown because of people and advancing technology. The industrial age centered work in urban areas. Immigrants moved to cities with the promise of opportunity. And the bustling cityscape became a symbol of capitalistic success. While cities have been shaped and shifted by growing changes in technology, how have they been designed for people? I'm joined by my guest co-host this week, Joe Minicozzi to learn about how he and his team at Urban3 take a different approach to land value economics, property and retail tax analysis, and community design. Joe is the principal of Urban3 and an urban planner imagining new ways to think about and visualize land use, urban design, and economics. He holds a Bachelor of Architecture from the University of Miami and a Master's of Architecture in Urban Design from Harvard University. Prior to creating Urban 3, Joe served as the executive director for the Asheville Downtown Association. 
He founded Urban3 to explain and visualize market dynamics created by tax and land use policies. In 2017, Joe was recognized as one of the 100 most influential urbanists of all time. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I love this. I'd love to hear from you. What's sort of like the critical foundation of the way cities have been designed to date? There's ways that people think cities are designed, that somebody's making a conscious choice, like the city halls said to do blah, blah, blah. This housing project happened because the city wanted blah, blah, blah. And the answer is no, it's the forces of the, of the market driving a lot of this stuff. So in the case of, you know, for the listeners in Boston, when you have height limits in the back bay or historic guidelines that you have to do certain things, that's going to limit the amount of capacity that can happen in that environment. So if there's people that want to be there, it's going to price up the market and you'll prices will go through the roof. You can't afford to live there. The response to that is typically you find either large buildings that come in that can somehow negotiate their way through the process, which is painful and expensive. So the developer needs to make a really big building to be able to compensate for all of the expenses in the design process. There's suburbia or suburban sprawl that happens that we all build a highway collectively to drain the city and it accesses more new land, which is cheaper. So more people move out there because there's this externalization of they're not actually paying for that roadway, even in a toll situation is subsidized. So there's cash flows that are happening that I, I like to say form follows finance. If you look at it, you'll see it. Um, it's, it's easier to, in context of outside of Boston, it, for anybody that's visited Florida and driven around the suburban sprawl there, you see it more readily. And you see it in the ticky-tacky cheap architecture and stuff like that. All of that's just a financial pro forma of how the cities operate. We like to think that it's planned with a capital P, that there's some mastermind making this happen, but it's really not. It's more The planning departments tend to respond to things rather than actually consciously act. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask about because I think I get this question, right? Running a design museum, people ask like, architects, urban planners, like designing our city. Why are they designing our city this way? And I want to tell them that like, they actually, like you're saying, are responding to some of these constraints. For our listeners, I'd love to have, like, what's your definition of urban planning and why is it important? I mean, the simplest way that I think of urban planning or city design or urban design is think of the places you go to visit. Think of, you know, in, in the Boston context, you're surrounded by it. So where do you spend your time? Um, what streets do you walk down? What, what areas would you take me to if I was a tourist and say, this is Boston? Um, what are those street scenes, the feel of it, you know, being in Harvard Square and surrounded by people? It's not, it's, 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 it's that's kind of backdrop that forms this kind of street theater, if you will. If you go to Europe, you go to these places. I mean, what do you put on a postcard? Are you putting some dead mall in, in Framingham? Are you putting that on a postcard? Is that where you take your cousin to if they came <laughs> to visit? And yet we've built these places. These are conscious acts of our human habitat, if you will. So why is it that some of it's nice and why is it that some of it's horrendous? And these are conscious acts by humans. So these are obviously design decisions. How are they happening? And, and just also, we have to realize these are all choices, right? Somebody's made the choice that, that this happened. Somebody made the choice that there's a policy that gave me an incentive to build a, a piece of junk architecture, you know? And that's the thing that breaks my heart as an architect is you go to school, like I'm gonna be a designer. And yet most of the world is is touched by architects, but a lot of it's really, really awful and soul deadening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Urban3. What do you all do? What's the mission? We visualize economics. And really what I've learned as a designer is you can't 
suggest like, hey, maybe you should design something nicer. You're treated like some sort of freak for suggesting that or worse, you're some sort of like dictator that you're going to dictate design style or something like that. I worked in in zoning for a while and I remember a, a, a developer getting upset with me because I was asking about, you know, could you modify his design? And yet here's somebody that consciously bought like a BMW like a well-designed car, right. yet God forbid he make a well-designed building in my community. It's like, that was mm-hmm. an insult. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, one of the things I've kind of learned is, is in my career is that you can't win a design argument just talking about design because it's seen as too subjective for people. So instead, what we do is we pivot and talk about economics and we show how well-designed urbanism and walkable urbanism, all the stuff that we're trained to design in school is actually more tax potent for cities. It actually produces more community wealth. And if you see one of our models, it's you look at the downtown and it's like, it's not heads and shoulders above everything else. It's like leaps and bounds above everything else. And suburbia is flat as a pancake. So you take out all that horizontal infrastructure with very little tax gain, yet your downtown, which has expensive infrastructure, but it's got ridiculous amounts of growth. The easiest way to talk about this is, Again, Boston's sort of an anomaly, but if you look at communities like Asheville, North Carolina, where I live, we have a really potent downtown. We have a lot of sprawl too. And the suburban experiment was only able to be afforded by cities because of the embodied wealth of their downtowns. So they effectively, the irony is we kill our downtowns to make suburbia. And that suburban experiment won't last past a couple of life cycles before. We, and we're going through this right now. Cities are going broke because of the cost of suburbia. Yeah. Can you explain that more? What are those decisions that are being made that are kind of stripping cities of kind of economic opportunity and kind of wealth, spreading them? Yeah. yeah. And wealth, right. Well, th- think of it like, think of a Walmart. You know, it's, we always use Walmarts as an example and, and people are funny because they really, they're like, you hate Walmart. And I'm like, you're totally missing the point. I use Walmarts in every single presentation and I show how ridiculously awful they are financially. And I presented at the International Association of Tax Assessing Officers conference. Let that wash over you for a second. Love it. Love um, it. Th- that makes a, a an, like a, an urban design conference feel like Burning Man by comparison. It's like the <laughs> squarest conference ever. And the head of Walmart's property division gets up and does a keynote presentation showing how cheap his buildings are. Assessors, 3,000 of them, this guy's getting all of his property taxes lowered in one meeting by convincing the assessors that he's got a pile of junk building. $50 a square foot. That's it. That's what they're worth. So I'm like having a coronary because I'm like, how is he getting away with this? This is awesome. I mean, it's really smart. One meeting... 3,000 tax bills go down. And you know, if you build a system based on property value, there's a perverse incentive to build junk in your community, period. So I walked up to him and the thing that your taxes are an every year payment. An impact fee is like a one time you're in, you're out, done. But, but that, that fee to pay for the roads, the cops, whatever, that's really low. And so I asked him, I said, Mr. Terrell, what's the useful life of one of your buildings? And he immediately shot back 15, 20 years we designed the building to fall apart. It's on a fast depreciation schedule. We'll build another building and it'll go down just as fast. So when I talk to cities and towns, I'm like, realize this is your corporation. This is your community investment. And they're giving you that's got the life cycle of a cat. You know, 15 years, it'll be gone. We at least mourn the passing of a cat. Like, what's up with that that building? And 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 so, you know, walk, walk around Boston. Were these buildings in the back bay, were they designed by people that were just like, oh, this is going to be a 10-year investment or a 15-year investment, now we're out of here? No. Wow, these are like 100-year. <laughs> 200 years. I mean, you've got 
you've got buildings that were built in the 1700s laying around, totally. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's 300 years of producing taxes. That's awesome. Did you know the average Walmart consumes more in police services than it pays in property taxes? Wow. If we're not consciously as designers curious about this, well, then shame on us. You know, shame on us for not asking asking the question. Not, I don't hate Walmart for it. They're just showing us where all the failure is. Yeah, they're just doing, you know, they're playing on the playing field that we've set forward. I, I'm curious, though, so when you're creating these, and I've seen the listeners, I've seen these visualizations. They're beautiful. They're like almost like looking at a topographic map of a community and then overlaid, you know, uh, very uh, detailed kind of like bar charts of where these value is. It's a geospatial bar chart. Yeah, there we go. I'm curious when someone, let's call them a decision maker, and maybe you can tell us who those decision makers are, when they see this work and they see it visualized that way, like what surprises them about it? And then what do they kind of do with it? Well, one is it's a totally different way of approaching a community conversation. And because of that, what I found is that you're talking to politicians, you're talking to people that lead government. I don't mean this in a bad way, but but think of people that you know that are counselors or commissioners or mayors. I mean, these people win a popularity contest and the next thing you know, they're making huge decisions about multi-billion dollar corporations called cities, right? What the hell do they know? They didn't go to school for city planning or urban design or municipal finance. Like These are just super well-intended people. So they get in the middle of all of this and then you've got these technocrats, these public works directors or planners or finance officers, and each of them are in their own little silos talking in their own little language. Let me let you in on a little secret. Most planners don't learn taxation. They don't learn municipal finance. They don't get involved in finance conversations. They're just off doing zoning stuff. So the technically proficient world that we live in has actually divorced ourselves from this kind of cross-platform thinking. So as planners, we're not trained in taxation. I wasn't, you know, I went to a little school in Boston that they kind of like you touch on taxes, but you don't really dwell in it. In defense of Harvard, they actually trained us in real estate development. So we, we learned on the private uh, private sector side how this operates. So we weren't we, we were you know basically baptized baptized in in math um, that we weren't going to be fr- afraid of it. So it was a very important part of the curriculum. What we try to do is visualize this and show it to people. A picture is worth a thousand words. And we talk to people through graphics and with an empathy that people need to learn this stuff. And because of that, what, what ends up happening is we provide a common language for discussion, that it's not a free market that's happening here. You can see laid bare the costs and consequences of the economic system. And that's what we try to expose to people. Yeah. Otherwise, this is invisible, right, for people? I mean, human brain is so terrible at <laughs> the long game, for one. And then it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So as this work's being done in communities. Do you see an impact? You have examples of some work you've done that now like some time has passed. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, one is it's an absolute blast to present this stuff. It's, it's kind of like a weird form of performance art, you know, it's like, Hey, let's talk about numbers, but I'm doing it with like, you know, a typical slideshow is like a hundred slides of just visual economics. Yeah. Let's say listeners, I've seen some of these slideshows and they're just like, you can't help, but A, they're beautiful, Joe. I love the graphics. And B, like you said, like it makes it so much more clear than looking at like a spreadsheet, right? The spreadsheets you would need to work through this would be four-dimensional, like <laughs> different pivot tables and whatnot. Here's the thing. I went to design, design school. What do you learn in design school? You learn to stand in front of a jury. You've got drawings on the wall and those drawings better damn well explain what the heck's going on. 
It, it should explain what your design intent is. It should talk about the narrative. It's a visual story. So I've just translated that from an architectural education into a, let's talk about your city the same way, but it's just all a big picture. 65% of every audience is our visual learners. If you just sampled designers, you know, probably like 99% of us are visual learners where we have to like look at stuff to see it. But most audiences are like that. So it's, it's really, we have the power as designers. We're actually trained to communicate to people visually. And we just take advantage of that in our, in our, as a company. My favorite presentation was in Rancho Cucamonga, California. And I love saying that word, but Rancho Cucamonga, the, the vice mayor was a former math teacher. And I was doing a presentation to the planning commission in the city council and the, the vice mayor just like went off like a firework. She just starts yelling. She goes, oh my God, this is amazing. I could see it. I could see math. I used to be a math teacher in high school. And this is exactly the reason why every student should understand why math is important. I want a purple mountain because that's the downtowns kind of stick up like a big purple kind of spike. And she's like, we need more purple mountains. So it's kind of like, all right, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. This is fascinating stuff. I, I love the work you do. Thank you, Joe, for laying it out for us. Oh, thanks. I hope I've painted a picture, if you will. Absolutely. Listeners, you have to see this work. <laughs> we'll post some links, but be sure to visit urban3.com. And Joe, stick around and we'll bring Sam Seidel into the conversation after a break. Design Museum Everywhere's week-long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation. Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online, offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Sam Seidel. Sam is the creator and host of Unplanned, his video podcast about cities and how they work. He's an urban planner and former elected official. Sam is focused on expanding capacity and opportunity in urban communities through project creation, advocacy, implementation, and consulting services, all of which he calls urban strategies. Sam, welcome to the show. It's great to be part of your show and, and a real thrill to be here. So thank you very much. Yeah, we've been enjoying your show. I'd love to hear sort of, so you launched this podcast during COVID, video podcast called Unplanned. Tell us about yourself and I'd love to kind of, you know, what was the impetus for this new series? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I my background is in urban planning. Uh, it's my training. I got into like a lot of planners. I mean, planning is in some respects political in the sense you get involved in the local conversation. And I got mo more involved in the local politics here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live. Um, since then, I've been doing sort of project-based work. And then 
and then COVID happened and we were all sitting at home and I was on a Zoom call. Well, actually, I think it, I, I don't quite remember the exact moment, but there was a moment where people were unsure about what COVID was and what it was going to do. I think I got to a point where I, I, I had my great moment of insight was, yes, but it also allows us to run the experiment we never thought we could run, which is we can shut down an entire city for an entire day. And that happened around the globe. And that led me to Unplanned as a way to look at that phenomenon. And it's just been fun since then. I think a lot of our listeners, including me, think like cities are planned. That's how they work. So tell us from your perspective, you know, as a city planner, how are cities planned? How are cities unplanned? Like, and, and what's that tension? Well, it is interesting. I mean, uh, it's funny. I was just, I was actually just doing an episode of my podcast and I was talking to uh, a couple of people and one of them said, you know, I, I'm a planner, but I don't plan anymore because I think the whole COVID experience has taught us that there's a lot out there that you really can't plan for. I think more broadly in the planning context, it's, it's interesting because we do apply planning is an effort an attempt at any rate to apply a sort of rational process to collective decisions about public space, public and private spaces, I guess. But actually what ends up happening is often very rarely that. It's a mix of personal interest, attempt to make money, desire to create urban space. And that happens within the broader context of some sort of plan. I do find that that tension very, very interesting. Let's talk about your, what you're gleaning from the show, because I think you're uncovering some of these like hidden components of cities, like like the water supply. Like we don't even think, <laughs> right, about how water comes into our cities. And I guess even more interesting is like it just magically goes away from our homes, apartments. So tell us about that, maybe and about some of the other kind of things you've uncovered as you're diving in. I won't focus on the podcast aspect too much, but I, one of the things that I've been thinking about more more recently, and I think anybody who does this kind of stuff does think about this, is how do you tell a good story, right? We, we One of the great sort of innovations, if you will, of the modern era, meaning millennials, I would say in particular, is this notion that a narrative is an important part of anything. It's not just a logical exercise or anything like that. So I've been thinking a lot about how do you tell a good story? And the water one was interesting, partly because water is uh, so crucial to life in general, right? Without water, there is no life. It's crucial to cities as well. And I know some guy at the water department, so there, there, there's a good start of a story there. And I thought, well, you know, what if you asked a, a fairly basic question, which is something that we all experience every day, multiple times a day, but probably don't stop to think about, which is if, when you turn on the tap, when you go into the kitchen or the bathroom and you turn on the tap and the water comes out of the tap, where does that water come from? And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to kind of trace that water back to its source? And that led to that episode where I, I found somebody over at the water department who I know who was more than happy because it's what he does every day for his day job, you know, to hop into a truck and drive me around and, and we could go find the, the literal source of where Cambridge's water comes from. And like all things, and you know, it's funny, you know, follow the river back up to its source. It literally is a tiny, and what I when I say tiny, I mean it's about a foot wide at the point that it comes out of this little pond, a, a foot wide little stream that is the source of most of Cambridge's water. And then it works its way down into a reservoir, and then that reservoir gets its way to your tap. But I thought, what if you could do that just over and over again? You know, just kind of, uh, you know, lift up the carpet, 
peel back the whatever and, and see where, where these systems come from. In doing that, what sort of surprised you and kind of brought up some of that like urban planning? And like, what have you learned that could help us design cities better? That's a big question. And my, my background's not in design, so I'm not a design person. I think one of the things that the COVID issue brought up really starkly, and we've all been thinking about this, but it showed us so clearly by that moment when cities just froze in time and nobody was out on the streets and there were no cars and no taxis and no bicycles and no pedestrians, it showed us the systems we've created intentionally and then the systems we've created unintentionally. There were so many different aspects to that, uh, both in terms of just the sort of the rational planning side, you know, does the system work as well as it could, but also the economic side, the social justice side. You know, there's a huge divide, and we all recognized it fairly quickly between the people who could work at home and the people who couldn't work at home. And of course, the people who couldn't work at home were exposed to the COVID virus times a thousand more than me who sat in my apartment for weeks at a time. And it was just that opportunity to sort of peel back all that stuff and just get a look at what those systems are in that rare moment that probably won't happen again for maybe for hundreds of years until there's another pandemic when we can stop and really pause and say, what, what have we created? I don't know that I have any really super big takeaways right off the top of my head, but there are lots of different angles that I've approached the problem from. And, and it's just been fascinating. And I've you know, I'm happy to sort of dig into any and all of those. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what Joe and I were, we started talking a little bit about systems. Maybe there's another, is there another system that you uncovered that sort of like underlies our urban life? The one that keeps coming back into my own head as I think about this and as I was thinking about doing this podcast was talking to who was then the police chief of Cambridge. And he happened to be an African-American man. Um, uh, chief of police here in Cambridge, which is a city of 100,000. Um, it's urban in some ways, but it's not uh, intensely urban like a lot of other communities. Uh, but he was very outspoken. This was also, of course, the time of a lot of the discussion about racial justice and policing, et cetera. And it was just a very, I thought, a very candid conversation by a person in power uh, in that profession who was just very open about the need for reform. And I, I'm going to misquote him slightly, but it was, you know, if you tell me that policing doesn't need reform, I don't agree with that is basically what he said. And I thought, well, that's a fairly powerful statement there. But we've gone from sort of serious topics like that to also talking to a guy who's here in Cambridge. He's uh, He's a sort of adjunct over at MIT in the planning department, but he's a film buff. And I asked him, you know, give me, you know, five of your favorite movies about cities. And he gave me a list that was absolutely wonderful. And we kind of went through all his movies, um, including a, a movie called, I'm going to say, Symphony of a City, which is a German film from the 1920s. And it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's a silent film with music attached to it. And it's really about a city as a symphony, and it just goes through the working day of the city of Berlin. It's absolutely brilliant. It might be from the early 30s to another movie called Naked City, which is a 1948, I think, um, thriller, sort of police procedural is what he called it, an absolutely wonderful film, to the sort of Mad Max type films, you know, the sort of dystopian urbanity stuff. So lots of different, lots of different angles, and it's just been so much fun to dig into all of them, really. And Joe, I, I, of course, our, your guest host was... 
you know, in some ways, one of the one of the most fascinating conversations I think I've had in the, in all the conversations I've had was, um, you know, just I mean, sort of like the work that 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 Joe does of sort of taking something that happens every day, every year in a city, which is tax assessment, and then you know, sort of peeling back the layer a little bit and saying, what's what's really going on here? And and sometimes you get some really striking observations about that kind of stuff. I want to pick up on something that Sam pointed out that in, in our profession, we could have conversations about things, but there was this sort of veil that you could feel in public conversations about things you could and couldn't talk about, things that would be like maybe pushing it a little too far for people to experience that the the pandemic actually really helped um, allow us to be more raw in our conversations to point these things out. Uh, we started doing redlining analysis before the pandemic, and it was weird dropping that stuff on an audience. After the pandemic, everybody's willing to hear about it and and take take open ears to it uh, to realize that you know for thirty years from nineteen thirty four to nineteen sixty eight, certain families, predominantly black, but also Italian and Jewish and whatever immigrant was coming into the community at that time was disconnected from a mortgage process for 30 years. So what does that do to that neighborhood? If you can't fix your house, you can't sell your house, you can't get a home improvement loan, or if you did, all that stuff happened in a predatory system. So as we look around these neighborhoods and you see flash forward to 1968 and they're like, oh, this neighborhood's blighted, like the East End in Boston. Uh, That was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So that neighborhood was removed from the economic system. It's fascinating. And that's that sort of uh, goes back to the point I was making about the systems we've created, both intentional and unintentional. Now, in some ways, the system that Joe is describing was intentional, but it's unintentional or it's uh, off the radar in the sense that it happened decades ago. So for somebody born in 1968, this is just the world that I inherited. This is not something I participated in. And yet, uh, the depth of it in the, in how our cities work is just huge. It, it the impacts just linger on beyond that, and it I, I think bringing some of that to light has been part of what the podcast has been about. I, I I will add to the other part that I think Joe was saying, which is is that notion that you know in some ways Zoom has Zoom is a passive medium in many ways. It is the way that we meet and talk now, but. It has broadened the spectrum. So a meeting I was on, which was just a public meeting, um, garnered 200 people on it. And in the past, that would have been a meeting maybe of 80, 70 or 80 people. And they were interviewing as part of their panel discussion, new mayors in the Boston metro area. And I, I couldn't help. Some were sitting in their offices with the American flag behind them and the whole bit, but some people were sitting in their homes and you thought, here I am talking to a brand new elected mayor who's sitting in their study or wherever they are, and we're having a conversation. And I am part of this conversation, and I'm not sitting, you know, 15 rows back from this person. I'm actually sitting there hearing them talk to me directly and 200 other people. And I'm I'm curious where that goes. That's also a topic I'd love to delve into. But Joe, you were going to say something. I want to ask you a question. Like, you're a planner, um, you're a rational thinker. I'm I'm a designer. I'm like coming at it from a different angle, but. Planners are more uh, rigorous, more methodical about systems and how things, and I experienced that just in my career working with planners, but you took that leap in the pandemic of moving into this unplanned space. 
So if you have you had the opportunity to like maybe look backward at yourself and say over this last couple of years, what are things that you just you would have never contemplated or planned in this process that you can look back at now and say, well, that was interesting. Um, like you know, aside from these these pieces that you just mentioned, what was how do you look at yourself from maybe a little bit of afar to see what you've just been through? What would be that moment that pops up? Well, the COVID thing, I think, I guess one way I'll say this, and um, this is going to sound a little pompous, and maybe it is a little pompous, but I was sitting with a friend of mine, and we picked up a copy of King Lear. That's the pompous part. As one does. As one does. As one does. You know, we thought, well, we'll just read a couple of pages of King Lear. That'll be kind of fun. But before I, before we did actually sit down and start reading King Lear, I started reading the introduction that was written by somebody, I don't know, some professor or something. And he, or that person wrote in the introduction about how in 1590, whatever, I'm guessing the date, um, the Globe Theater had to shut down because of the plague. And the thought that came into my head was if I had read that, and maybe I did read that when I was 15 years old or 16 or 17, I would have thought, oh, that's hundreds of years ago. We'll never experience, though that's from olden days. Lo and behold, we have just been through a plague in effect. You know, the Decameron, which was written when in the 1300s, is relevant today. We have just had one of those experiences from way back when. And I hope, I guess one of the things I would say is I hope, because this is one of the things that came up in some podcasts that I did, the number of people who said, wow, what an experience, but in a weird way, except for all the horrible things, what a blessing to be able to stop and pause. One episode I did was with a guy locally here who's a sort of a housing guy. He's sort of a housing policy guy, and he's, he's pretty knowledgeable about housing, and yada, yada, yada. We, you can picture the person, the type of person. But this wasn't about housing. It was about the fact that in COVID, uh, he decided to sit down and go through his father's stamp collection, his father who had been a stamp collector until he died 10 or 11 years ago. And this was something his son was never interested in. But COVID offered him the time to do this. And that became a daily thing he posted on Facebook where he took a stamp and then he wrote something about the stamp. And I said, well, let's go through some stamps that are related to cities. And he had some wonderful ones. But the takeaway was this, along the, the themes that we were just talking about, he, on Dante's birthday, he had a stamp of Dante, American, US postage stamp, 500 years of Dante, I'm, I'm going to say, probably got it that wrong. But but he said his what he wrote on Facebook that day was what we've experienced this last year in the COVID year was like Dante's divine comedy, because there certainly was a bit of hell involved, right? All the death and destruction. But we're also in a kind of purgatory. We're all stuck in our homes and we can't interact with each other. And then in addition to that, there's just a tiny bit of heaven in there that you actually had time to stop and pause and think about your life. And I, to me, it was one of the most wonderful episodes I remember doing was just that conversation where this guy, you know, reconnected with his dad in a way through the stamp collection. And it was a one and the guy was, a, you know, he was an urban person. He knew all about cities, but it was just his little walk through his dad, stamps, cities. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, you've got me thinking, right? Because like cities are basically machines <laughs> with lots of interconnected parts that we never turn off, right? And most machines, you know, you might turn it off to like fix some stuff. And so maybe there's a question for both of you, like in absence of another pandemic, 
how do we take more critical looks at cities and pause, maybe take snapshots? Maybe, Joe, maybe this is the work that you're doing. Like, How do we kind of uncover this stuff in a way that allows us to pause, identify, problem solve, and make changes when the machine just keeps moving? Uh, you know, I'm I'm concerned that we'll have amnesia mm-hmm. and just go right back to the way that we've we've been. I've started my company in at the height of the recession, and the music the music stopped. There was no construction going on. There was no money going to buildings, and then all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, every single city was broke, and no one stopped and said, "Wait a minute, why are we all broke?" And we were only broke because we didn't have this growth machine. So the cities are essentially an pardon the language, but it's an economic Ponzi scheme. If you're not growing, you can't afford the stuff you already bought. So you're dependent on new growth to pay for the old stuff. Boston's a, an anomaly in this because it's so old. It's kind of, you know, you see more of the problem with the edges in the, in the suburbs than you do in the city. But, you know, I was basically pointing that out like, hey, um, can you see why your problem's here? The music is frozen. Um, now, give it, give it two or three years and all of a sudden everybody forgot again until the pandemic. And so I think that this, as Sam points out, this pandemic is a blessing. I'm sort of of the mindset of trying to get as much information out there as fast as possible before we go back into an amnesia world. We can now talk about the inequities in the tax system, and it's not a boogeyman conversation. I'm pointing out in my town how the the top 1% of properties, so the one percenters, over the last 20 years, their property has actually gone down in value from what it was 20 years ago, while the bottom 1%, so it's going and growing at 80% of value, so it's losing 20-something percent. The, the bottom 1% has grown plus 526. So 526% value growth for the poorest among us. The wealthiest among us, their property is going down because they need the tax break, but that's baked right into the tax system. So I can have that conversation now and people are willing to hear it and not put up blinders or not say, oh, it's the system, we can't change it. You know, those, those are the conversations you'd have before pandemic of, oh, it's the tax system. Who could change the tax system? Moses delivered that. We can't, we can't change that. That's on stone tablets. Yeah, you know, yeah. Now we can say that screwed up and people are like, oh yeah, we should change it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think it, it has forced us to um, just to acknowledge. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the right word is. That these aren't boogeyman subjects anymore. That you really can talk about all these issues because it's so obvious. You know, it's there was a story in the news early in COVID. Uh, you know, that was heartbreaking. Like so many of those stories of a bus driver. But I think this was all over. Maybe it's in Detroit. I'm going to say bus driver and somebody two rows behind him just coughing incessantly. Early COVID, and he did a little video. I think he just looked into his camera and said, this is bad. And I think he got COVID and may have died. And I, the other, there's another factoid that just sits in my brain and I'm not sure why it's still early COVID, you know, 50 employees of, of the New York, um, bus, you know, at the MTA bus drivers died from COVID. And I'm thinking, you know, it's the MTA is a big organization, but 50 people won the human loss. And then, you know, just, they have to keep that system up and running. They've got to go find 50 other bus drivers. They've got to go find 50 other shop managers to do all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I agree with Joe. I, I hope we don't forget this. Um, I saw a very funny online post, a meme uh, the other day, which was two aliens looking at a television screen. And they say on planet alien, 
they don't get it because two episodes ago we were in a pandemic and now we're in World War Three. How did that happen? That's too quick. But sure enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> on we go. Things are moving. Thank you both. Great conversation. And Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, loving the show. Thanks for sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. What a pleasure. Uh, real pleasure for me. Uh, I think Dante was 800 years ago. There we go. Let's get those numbers. <laughs> 500 seems to be too I was like, ah, oh, 500. <laughs> Listeners, to see more of Sam's work, visit his website at unplanned.xyz. And his YouTube channel is Unplanned. And we'll post links to both in the show notes on our episode page. It's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that's impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'm going to go first. I didn't plan this, um, but my weekly dose is a book about strategy. So I'm really interested in business strategy, right? I run a business. And um, a lot of these, I, I read a lot of strategy books that are all about <laughs> the metaphor is always war, right? Like campaigns and like winning these battles, but like business is, is similar, but it's not exactly that. So I finally found, I think like the perfect business strategy book. It's called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, The Difference and Why It Matters. And it's written by Richard Rumelt. It's a great book. Uh, Richard has some amazing examples from his career in business strategy talking about like the real, like how do you actually get down to like that kernel? How do you diagnose issues in businesses and then create, you know, as I say in design, like prototypes and experiments to um, test some strategies and some new ideas. So highly recommend this book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Okay, Joe, you're up next. Well, I was traveling a lot um, before the pandemic. I, was, I used to joke that I would be on tour and um, stopping traveling, the amount of time that I was spending in airports, on airplanes, in transit, between places, then all of a sudden that just disappears. Now I'm on digital medium. Um, it's allowed me to kind of rediscover some bad habits, one of which is um, uh, I collected uh, a bunch of manhole covers and slate, and then I just decided to build a patio in my backyard. And let me just tell you that rock wall and all of the granite, that, that was... Um, fun uh therapeutic it's like a big puzzle it's a blast to do construction work i would not advise a single person to do that themselves that was pretty stupid um but it's allowed me the time to kind of just enjoy construction and creativity and building something i love the manhole covers in there it's a nice touch yeah i went down to a i went down to a uh, junkyard to drop off some metal and then they had this like big pile of manhole covers. So I'm like, oh, wow, those are mine. And I ended up yeah. spending 700 bucks driving out with these manhole covers. Um, but everything else is kind of found objects from around town. Ash Asheville is very much a, an Appalachian kind of place. It's a very laid back environment. So it's, it's a very creative environment too. Lots of art, uh, public art. I talked to a muralist uh, this week about doing a mural on my building, um, making a political statement. Hopefully we'll see. How that goes. Oh, I love it. Um, I love it. That could it, be the next weekly dose. Yeah, it's kind of fun. So it's a great place to live and it's I've enjoyed it here. So awesome. Yeah. So we got two weekly doses. We got Joe's patio and Asheville. So that's that's pretty good. Thank you. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I'd love to share it on the podcast. And you could tweet it at me, share it with me. I'm on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Joe, this was awesome. Love chatting with you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. 
That's our show. Again, I want to thank Joe Minicozzi and Sam Seidel for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. We have an awesome email newsletter comes out every week. Uh, You can sign up for that on our website as well. Just scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. You'll get the latest info on upcoming events, new podcast episodes, everything from us. Speaking of the podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Designers Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help more people find us so we can keep having this amazing conversation about the transformative power of design. Thanks so much, everyone. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.